Welcome to the Haunted Hacker podcast number, I don't know, Mark, what number do you want this to be? 199. Perfect. Perfect. 199. Um, so tonight we have Mark Elliott, former CIA, um, on the podcast tonight, talking to us about cyber and, and other topics. Um, a little bit of news before we start. Um, just got done speaking for uh, DHS, and next month is ICE. Um, also doing a talk in the American Virgin Islands for a super yachting conference, um, as well as a, another conference for government in January, hopefully. So without further ado, Mark, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad you could finally make it. It's a real honor to have you on. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what brings you to the podcast? Mike, thanks a lot for inviting me. I, I really appreciate the offer. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. And uh, you, uh, you reached out to me, connected with me, and uh, you and I had a number of uh, conversations uh, back and forth about uh, a range of uh, really interesting issues involving cyber. And uh, so that's really how I found out about, uh, about your podcast and, and this, uh, this opportunity. So, so thanks for that. Uh, how I got into uh, cyber, well, I, as a kid, I mean, I, I loved computers. I'm, I'm relatively old, I guess, <laughs> in the sense that you know, my, my first computer was, was before the TRS-80s. Uh, it was a, a PET, you know, the, 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 the PET computers. And, uh, uh, and then after that, so my, my elementary school had one of those, and, and that's how I learned basic programming you know, a long time ago. And then after that, I, I, uh, I had a TRS-80, like a lot of people. And then after that, I went out and bought an Atari 800. I don't know if you can see the shirt. Nice. But <laughs> So, uh, so that was, uh, I was into the gaming and, and I was into the, uh, the programming also. So I thought it was really fascinating. Um, now I, I will be honest with you. They had the early, uh, telephone connection type of modems where you stick the phone into the, <laughs> into the slots and everything and the suction cup things. And, and I was not really into that because at the time, uh, lack, lack of imagination on my part. I thought, well, who are you going to talk to? I don't, I don't really get it. So, so I spent my time trying to make these, you know, basic language computer programs. And, uh, and then after that, uh, I, I got into other, other things. I, I got into political science, thought that that was pretty interesting. And, uh, and when I went to, to university, that's what I ended up majoring in. Political science, government, international affairs, all, all kind of combined. So my, my interest in, in uh, computing was kind of a, a sideline. I, I still into computers, into gaming, into computer news. Um, I always had kind of the newest gigantic desktop computer, and uh, I was the only person in, on my dorm floor to have a you know the old dot matrix printers. So most everybody else went and typed their computer uh, papers up in the, in the computer lab, and you know, I had this all set up in my in my dorm room. Uh, I made friends that way. So everybody wanted to come by and print out the paper. Uh, so that was, uh, that was a good way to meet people. But, uh, but then uh, after, after that, I graduated and I joined the uh, State Department. I went into the Foreign Service uh, for real. I mean, I, I took the Foreign Service exam. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's funny because everybody back then uh, asked me, hey, are you really in the agency? No, I'm really in the Foreign Service. <laughs> Went overseas and, and went to South America, did a few tours down there. Really interesting stuff. Uh, but that was right around the, the beginning of kind of the public internet. And so I, I finally bought a computer a couple of years into my, my tours in, in South America. 
and was really just captivated, fascinated by, by the internet. Uh, I learned how to do HTML and, uh, and make websites kind of you know, by hand, the old fashioned way. Mm-hmm. And, and loved doing that kind of stuff. So it, I, I did that. Uh, again, it's kind of a hobby at the end of my days of diplomacy, <laughs> diplomatic work uh, abroad. I come home and, and, and practice things like that. So, uh, so then I guess around 99, I decided uh, hey, the world is a much safer place. The, 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 the wall had come down. The, the Cold War was winding down. And, uh, and that was it. It was the end of history. That's what everybody was talking about. So I figured, who needs diplomacy? You've got, uh, you got email, you've got CNN, done. They don't need me here anymore. So, so uh, I, I thought that the internet was really kind of a more interesting environment. And I, I took off a, a buddy of mine and I, uh, we started a company out on the East Coast. And maybe that was our, our first mistake, not being out on the West Coast, where all, all the investment money was at the time. But uh, this is, again, around 99, 2000. And we set out to create an internet service provider, dial-up, mind you, back in the old days, a dial-up ISP that would let people surf anonymously and for free and send emails that were encrypted by default. So uh, the only problem is nobody really knew how to do all those things at the time. So that's why we we were pitching the concept and trying to sell it to venture capital firms. So all the VCs that we, we pitched to, my, my, my buddy was big in, in the business world. He had a lot of contacts. He'd gone to a, a top-notch business school. Uh, so he knew all these uh, all the, 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 the heavy hitters in, in, in some VC firms. And we pitched to a number of people. And they all said, well, this is a neat idea. Too bad you hadn't come along six months earlier because we just funded a free ISP uh, play. And, and we were explaining, no, we're different because we want to have privacy. I mean, for us, it was all, it was all about the, the concept, the philosophy of, of internet privacy. Mm-hmm. But in 2000, nobody was buying that. And everyone was asking us, why do you care about internet privacy? Or is this a service for criminals? And we were explaining, no, philosophically, certainly as Americans, and, and I would imagine in a lot of other countries, you, know, you should have the right to have a private conversation uh, amongst your friends or, or whomever you, you want to want to talk to, and mm-hmm. and you should have the right to be online without people tracking your whereabouts. And so, so, so it was just uh, it was just very funny because even back in two thousand, you know, there there was the issue of privacy tracking, ISPs knowing where you were, cookies, basic cookies, uh, that type of thing. And these guys just were not; they were not getting it. They were only focusing on the business side. We we'd come up with a fairly innovative concept for advertising because unfortunately, you know, it would have to be ad based, mm-hmm. but we thought we'd sort of sweeten the pot and make it a little bit different in that uh, instead of trying to guess what you might like based on your prior surfing habits and whatever demographic information you could buy from data brokers or, or take from you uh, out in the world, we decided to just ask our clients and we thought, Hey, why don't we ask people what they're into and just, all kinds of things they're they're interested in, whatever they might be interested in seeing an ad about, we'll serve you those ads. So you have interest-related ads rather than kind of demographic related or behavior-related ads. Um, and so so that was the the concept. So I mean, you know, we're all we're all for commerce. We were out to make money, certainly, and we had a, a plan to to get uh, to get the ads in there to make it an ad-supported thing, because at the time it was really hard to do anonymous payments on the internet, obviously before, you know, 
uh, any of the coins that exist to do that type of thing. We, we talked to a few companies about, uh, about helping out on, on uh, just the uh, anonymous surfing front. And even that part was extremely challenging. There was a, com- a company back in the old days, uh, it's called Zero Knowledge Systems. And you know, we, we talked to them about, about it briefly. And uh, so long story short, we didn't get it funded um, because again, people didn't really understand the, the, the value of internet privacy. We kept saying, look, it's soon you will care about internet privacy. We figured we were about seven years too early <laughs> with that idea. And now it's, it would probably be a lot harder to create an ISP, an entire ISP that would let you do all that stuff by default. You, know, mm-hmm. you can piece it together, of course. You can, have, you can use Tor, you can use ProtonMail you know, for your emails and things like that. Uh, and a couple of other companies. But in general, yeah, that, that ship has largely moved on for the masses. And I think the internet is in a very different place now compared to where it might have been had that been an actual kind of market selling point where, where privacy, online privacy is seen as a virtue and mm-hmm. uh, customers were either asked for their data uh, or, or the customers were paid for their data. You know, that concept's coming into play a little bit right now. Um, but but still, hardly hardly the, the broad adopt. It doesn't have the, the broad adoption that the, the current systems have of just kind of scraping the data. Or, or when you sign up for for a service, boom, have this gigantic EULA, uh, and then and somewhere buried in there, it says, yeah, we have all we own all of your data. We can do whatever we want with it. That kind of thing. So in any event, uh, so after that, uh, after we dissolved the company, um, I was doing. Cons- computer consulting for a number of years, and then, uh, then 9-11 happened. And so, and, you know, for a while, uh, it was uh, on that, on the very day, I was really concerned of, uh, about what was going on, I, like everybody else, I think, in, in, in the country. But uh, my brother had uh, his, uh, one, his business office was in uh, one of the towers. And for about six hours, I hadn't heard anything from him. I thought he was dead. Wow. Now, the good news is he, he finally was able to send a text and, uh, and, and let everybody know that, that uh, he'd made it okay. Um, so we were all set. But, I mean, it really moved me, really shaped my thinking. So, you know, even though I stayed in the private sector for a while, I realized, okay, time to do something different. So uh, I wanted to contribute to the effort uh, that, that we were dealing with as a nation back then. So, so I, uh, I joined the, the CIA. And uh, I signed up to be uh, a case officer, uh, an operations officer, going out and recruiting people, recruiting spies, stealing secrets, as, uh, as they say. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of my experience in cyber, they, they picked me up for, uh, for what we call IOC, uh, mm-hmm. the Information Operations Center uh, back then. And, and that's what I did for a, a few years. And it was really, really fascinating. Um, honestly, this is what, uh, what I had to <laughs> had to delay the podcast for, so I could actually say, "Hey, can I?" I mentioned that I work for IOC and and, and talk a little bit about that. So, uh, so yeah, they they said that I could, and so really, it's it's kind of funny. The first time ever that I've actually talked about this, I've done a couple of other podcasts mm-hmm. about a, a topic that we'll we'll get into later, cyber insurance, but uh, um, but I never. <laughs> I don't know. You decide what's more interesting. Uh, Cyber insurance or CIA cyber? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but in any event, so so long story short, no, it, it really was fascinating. And, mm. and my background was not 
as a hacker. So I, I don't have experience as a hacker. Uh, what they wanted was somebody who uh, knew about, about cyber in general, knew about business, uh, who could talk to people on kind of both sides of the fence. And, and that's definitely what I've done uh, with the startup. They, they, they like that concept. And so I think that's, that's why they wanted me to be uh, in that division. And so, yeah, for, for a while, while I was there, it was, it was really fascinating. It was a great ride because we were focused on doing, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the concept of humans, human intelligence, oh. right? So that's what case officers are, are, are out there doing. And instead of collecting stuff um, uh, like signals intelligence and, and things like that, that maybe some other agencies do or, or other parts of the agency do, the case officers are, are responsible for for meeting with human sources and, and getting intelligence that way. So, so my focus was on uh, going after cyber-related targets. And even without you know, being a hacker, uh, the, the value that you can bring to the table as somebody who is cyber-interested and got a, a, some kind of a background in that is just being able to relate to people in the space. So... Now, I was always kind of a, a little bit different in school and, and I love the, the cyber stuff. I love computer things. And so I, I really, I think, related to a number of people who I worked with over the years uh, who had that kind of background also, because I'm sure as you've seen in the, the cyber world, the computer world, it's its, its own community and, and several communities inside of that gigantic community. Yeah. And they really, they really prize individuality, being different, being unique. And, and so it takes, uh, I really think it kind of takes somebody who's got a bit of that experience to work with other people in, in that space. Uh, so, so that's what I did. Um, and then, and feel free to jump in. Sure. You want sure. But, but uh, later on in my career, uh, I ended up going to, uh, to grad school, went to grad school very late in, in my career, in my life. I mean, it's like in my late forties. And, uh, and I was able to, uh, do a, a cyber a cyber studies certificate in addition to my, my main uh, degree, uh, the national security studies. But uh, but I did my thesis on on cybersecurity and a concept called cyber civil defense. I mean, I'd like to think that I coined it. I, I own the URL to that as I was as I was developing my my topic for my my thesis. Uh, I, it was pretty late at night because, of course, it was the thesis topic was due the next day. And uh, <laughs> I looked at it and I said, oh, I, this has to be taken. And I went, you know, looked available, triple checked it to make sure I wasn't misspelling it. And so, boom, I took it. So, yeah, the idea of cyber civil defense really appealed to me. And, and I kind of uh, looked at, you know, what's the best way to defend the country as a whole, not just critical infrastructure parts. Uh, but uh, but as, as a nation, and and what's the government's role in that? Plus, uh, in addition to the private sector's role, because mm. it can't be all government, can't be all private sector. Right. And, and people love to bandy about the public-private partnership uh, idea, and and there have been some manifestations of that. But I thought, okay, we've got some some examples of public-private partnership, but cyber attacks are still going up. The amounts of money that are being stolen are still increasing. And the severity of the tax is seems to be increasing also. So something's not working. So that's Absolutely. yeah, so that's what I focused on in, in my my topic. Uh, um, and and what it came down to, surprisingly enough, looking at it, 
uh, I thought, all right, if you want to make this voluntary, what's going to motivate people? It's not going to just be like a public service announcement. It's, right. it, it can't just be the government gets together with a few big players in the cyber industry and then say, hey, these are the best 23 things to do <laughs> for, for cybersecurity. Uh, some people will do them. Most people have never even heard of these organizations that are putting out the information. So right. what I realized is, is the, the place that you're going to get uh, the most motivation is probably, and ironically, the, the insurance industry. Uh, you're not going to get Congress to make a, a broad enough law to cover everyone. Plus, who, who wants to be forced to do it by law, right? And then True. finally, finally, Congress. there's no way Congress can keep up with the, the, the speed of change in, in the cyber world in terms of security. Right. So you got to do something else. Um, so that, that's the concept that, that, uh, that I, that I worked on and, um, happy to jump into the sure. session part. With you. Sorry. Sure. I feel like I've been talking. No, no, absolutely. It's, it's very interesting. So our backgrounds kind of mimic each other in some aspects. Um, I, on nine 11, I went and re-enlisted in the military and jumped into the IC, uh, area of, of military, the intelligence communities. Um, I worked for, uh, former CIA, uh, field op from Morocco. Um, when I worked for one of John Waters' uh, company's eyesight partners. Um, so I've, I've dealt with the IC pretty much most of my life. I mean, I was born in D.C. My dad worked at the NSA. Um, the favorite museum on the planet by far is the Spy Museum. Uh, but the tech, the technology is, is, has always intrigued me, um, all the way back to building you know, little RF uh, transmitters for landlines. Um, mm -hmm. just stuff like that. So I got really interested in intelligence and, and the way the world was going. I still remember when uh, President Reagan got on the television and announced that we were bombing Libya. Um, and that's what really sparked my interest in political mm -hmm. science. Although I don't have a degree and, and I don't, uh, I didn't, you know, work in any political science, but I feel like in the intelligence community, you have to have a, some, some level of knowledge of political science in order to be uh, functional. Um, but so the internet and cyber insurance is a very interesting topic for me. Um, you know, we, we all know that the regular insurance, health insurance, car insurance, uh, a lot of the insurance agencies are very corrupt. Um, and one thing I'm starting to see on a, I guess a public level um, and more, more in tune with small, small to medium business is that a lot of these companies are getting breached or getting taken advantage of by cyber insurance companies. Um, in, in the aspect of they seem more apt to pay the ransom than they are to actually bring the people back online without paying the ransom. Um, I've been on a couple incident responses where the first question is, has anybody contacted a threat actor? And my response is always, let's not worry about that right now. Let's see what we got to damage control and see if we can't mm -hmm. get you back online. Mm -hmm. And those conversations only go so far until cyber insurance shows up and then they put a stop to it and immediately want to talk about the ransom. So mm. do you think there will be like a, a median, like where we won't worry so much about how much is the ransom and focus more on the people side of it and getting people back into operation? Or is that always going to be the main factor of concern is the financial uh, ransom that they're putting on the companies? That's a great question. Honestly, I'd like to move it back a step and sure. talk about prevention, right? Sure. So, I mean, as I'm sure you know, even before the cyber insurance companies are taking advantage of, of, of companies like you were pointing out, 
I think the, the, the bigger problem is that they were not at making them adhere to reasonable standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, forget the small and medium-sized companies. What about the gigantic companies where you've got hundreds of millions of records, personal records that have right. been breached? And then you come to find that they were using a, a simple password or they weren't using two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication or anything. Mm-hmm. And it was just the most obvious of things where it's kind of like you've got a, a store selling diamonds and on the front door, they, they've got a, they've got a summer Padlock. screen. Gate. Yeah, exactly. Right. With just a little thumb to not a, a thumb lock. You'd say, wait, wait a second. Shouldn't that, shouldn't that have been stronger? And then the insurance company walks in and says, nah, don't worry about it. We're just going to pay. Um, that's that's kind of what's going on in, in a lot of these cases, not all, uh, a certain percentage though. And, and there's a lack of standards to in the very beginning. And it's one of those things where if you could get every company that, that has a cyber insurance policy to adhere to a, a broad set of minimum standards, mm. you, would, you would have far fewer attacks to begin with. Now, after that, let's, let's say, yeah, you're a large company, you're a big target, you've got the usual suspects coming after you, hitting you thousands of times a day. And then, you know, one time at some point they, they win, they, they're successful and they get through your defenses. Then it's a two-pronged approach. I think, yeah, you get guys like you uh, working super fast, being very diligent to try to get them online as fast as possible. You also have the negotiation side. You got the negotiator opening up the, the communications, not agreeing to anything yet, but just starting the discussion because right. you want to try to, yeah, if you can pull out a backup that's not corrupted and you can get them up and, and you've also started a conversation, what have you lost? Eh, nothing. And then you just say, okay, hey, thanks. We don't need you guys anymore. And you you, you get your, your backups done. Yeah. But uh, uh, sometimes it's harder than that. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. So, I mean, that's that's really interesting. But so here's my question, you know, as, as, as the U.S. goes and as the government goes and, and terrorism and, and things like that, we've always been the country to not negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we refuse to negotiate with ransomware? That's a good question. Uh, so I would say that the better parallel, it's not so much terrorism because mm-hmm. terrorism is a, is a national level thing right. in the sense that when you kidnap a, a citizen, a U.S. citizen overseas, you're, that's, that's a crime against the, the entire country mm-hmm. because you're not just kidnapping that person for, for money. You're, you're kidnapping that person as a political state. Political state. That, so that's, that's terrorism in that sense. In that sense. Obviously, I think people get kidnapped uh, for purely financial reasons, and that's, that's a different thing if nobody's making a political statement. Right. Uh, I think a better comparison for, for uh, ransomware is, uh, and, and, and paying those ransoms is more like kidnappings. Uh, I, I had a lot of experience with real world kidnappings when I was in Latin America. I was in Colombia. And at the time, Colombia was the largest, it had the, the, the most number of reported kidnapping cases in the world. And it was estimated that only 10% of those cases were, were the ones that were reported. So, I mean, even with, again, 90% of these kidnappings being unreported, the remaining 10% still put Columbia at number one in, in, in the world for, for that. Uh, and at some point, the government of Columbia uh, passed a law saying you're not allowed to pay ransom. 
and they would actually they would actually shut down people's bank accounts when their you know one of their their relatives uh, was kidnapped. And so so as you can see, this is why you had ninety percent of kidnappings going unreported. And and the downside of that is that then you do force it into the purely financial realm in terms of transactions. And kidnappers know they have a nine out of 10 chance of grabbing somebody and never having to deal with authorities. So that's, I think that's the problem. So if if Congress actually passed a law, and I know there's been discussion about that, if Congress actually passed a law saying that it's now against the law for for companies to pay ransoms uh, for ransomware, I I think you would see a lot of that. You You would then have uh, third-party ransom negotiators, maybe even working out at third countries, doing these kinds of negotiations for, for large companies. The other thing is, quite honestly, if you do have more attacks on, on very important companies like uh, uh, like pipeline companies and things like that, uh, then you really do have a, a, a tough thing because is the government going to assume the risk and the burden of either getting that company back online so that a national infrastructure type of thing like like oil can get back online, or are they going to say, yeah, go ahead and pay the $5 million? I mean, you know, which costs more, which takes longer, what, what is actually hanging in the balance when you're, when you're talking about this? So for those reasons, I think that, that actually having a law in place that says you're not allowed to pay ransom would not, uh, would not be the, the, the most effective way of doing it. Right. And, and at what point? So I remember during Obama's administration, he made a statement on national television internationally to, to the international community. The fact that if an attack on our infrastructure, cyber attack on our infrastructure is a sign of war, is a threat mm-hmm. of war. And that mm-hmm. he said that we would respond kinetically. But right. you still haven't seen that. I mean, we've seen Hamas right. do that. We've seen Hamas like go after Israel and Israel blow up an entire build, uh, building. Um, and you know, you've seen that those kinetic attacks over there, but over here, it seems like we're, we're really soft when it comes to that. I I don't know if it's trying to determine where that line resides Mm -hmm. or what's going to take it to the next level, because it seems like we toy with that, with that line of sand quite a bit, but nobody's made a clear demarcation as this is what's going to happen. But you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and more to your point. Uh, the, the bigger philosophical and legal question is, what is an act of war, right? That's literally what you're coming down to. And, and what I learned when I was, uh, when I was studying in, in grad school and working on my thesis is that uh, I was kind of surprised to find that there's not one thing that, that by some international law says, okay, this is officially an act of war. When someone does this to you, boom, you're officially at, at war. Uh, what it comes down to is it's whatever a nation decides is an act of war. So, I mean, think of an example. Uh, what about if, if someone attacks your nation's warships, right? A warship. Let's say they make a kinetic attack on it, blow a hole in the side of it, kill sailors from your country. Is that an act of war? I would say yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, and then the USS Cole got hit <laughs> just like that. And you know, sailors wanted. died, giant hole in, in the side of it. Mm-hmm. U.S. didn't go to war with anybody. Now, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we should have uh, gone to war with country X or country Y. It looks like, it, yeah, it was a terrorist attack. And who do you go to war with in a case like that? That's a tough one. Uh, the country that harbored the terrorists, certainly. You consider the country that sponsored the terrorists. Yeah, absolutely. 
But uh, but in the immediate aftermath, it was treated more of kind of an investigation. The FBI looked into it. They did the investigation. So that was kind of treated as not an act of war, but a, as a, a very large crime scene, right? So the point is, uh, it's what a government decides it wants to go to war over. Um, you know, meanwhile, looking back even further in, in history, but still on the high seas, you've got uh, the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, you know, that attack, kind of murky. Uh, looks like there were a couple of bullet holes in a ship. And, uh, and some people say not even that, but I mean, it's, it's, an interesting, um, it's an interesting question for history. Long story short, we started a huge war over that. And that's what, what set off, uh, of course, uh, the, the Vietnam War. Uh, now, and then finally, when you say war, this is, yeah, we all have a sense of what, what a war is and what right. we just saw in Afghanistan and Iraq. And yeah, a lot of shooting, a lot of people dying, a lot of military weaponry. Uh, that's a war. Of course, the U.S. hasn't declared war since, what, 1945. So, so, but yeah, we've been through some very violent things that look a lot like wars, which we colloquial, colloquially call wars. So, so yeah, who does declare war now? Anyhow, I, I, would, I would take the war concept out of it because then you do get into these very sticky questions of threshold, right? right. At, at what point will what if you destroy this server system? Well, what if it's a government server system? What if it's a private sector server system, but it's controlling a government function, <laughs> right? right. So, so, so I think that U.S. government should probably think in terms of, and I, I no longer speak for the U.S. government, so just to, right. to make sure everybody understands that this is not U.S. policy. <laughs> so I'm not speaking for any, anyone but myself in, in this capacity. But, but the, the idea, though, is that we should think in terms of responses and mm -hmm. calibrated, measured responses. I'd love to think way back in advance and think about prevention, of course. Um, and then I'd like to think about deterrence. I think it would be a very different story if countries that are harboring hackers knew, hey, guess what? Once we find the guys who are doing this, we will find the guys who are doing this these kinds of, of, of uh, sanctions are, are going to be put on you, or, or worse, these kinds of things, you know, we will do to you. And it's just going to be this large menu of things, you know, and deterrence, you can't be too specific, right. but all of them are, are, are various flavors of unpleasant, right? So, and then, and you're going to, you're, we're going to pick one of these and you're going to get it. Uh, if, if you're harboring guys, and we're just not going to play the game of, uh, oh, these are just hackers. We don't have any control of them. And we're so sorry that they're going after some of your biggest industries uh, that, that, right. that you really need to run your country. Um, and, and maybe even splitting the profits on the back end. So, right. I, I, I think, yeah, prevention first and, and then deterrence next, and then actually having some kind of, of, uh, of uh, responses prepared, ready to go, right, as yeah. after the incident happens. Uh, so I, I think it, even more, I mean, if you want to go down that path, maybe go down the, 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 uh, the way of uh, the early days of the U.S., you know, with letters of mark where you can send out privateers to go after yes. pirates, right? <laughs> go after hackers who are in place of, uh, they're basically modern day pirates. And, and the government would sanction uh, these guys to go after, after the, uh, the hackers. Somewhat, so I mentioned that idea to someone recently, and they said, "Well, would the government allow the the, uh, the privateers to to keep part of the, the money that they seize?" Well, it's not so much that I would imagine, but but the private companies 
that would want these privateers to go after these things, they would pay them a handsome, a handsome uh, fee to do right. that. So, so that's that's one way you could go with that. Yeah. So, so that brings up some some uh, interesting points and some interesting topics. Um, one of which, so I think we have the, the whole identification down. I think I think you know pointing fingers and and blaming people. I think we already have that down to, to a T. When you look at the FBI's most wanted list, it's guys from the RGU, you know, they just overpopulate the FBI's most wanted them in North Korea. And a lot of the, the ransomware, a lot of the attacks that I'm seeing on the street level is that it's coming from groups like that. But they're also opening a door to other groups, you know, people who are interested in the money and, and you know, the ransom. But it seems like the main actors aren't necessarily after the ransom per se, they're more after mm-hmm. intelligence. Um, and I, I really like the idea of, uh, you know, having people that we can trust that can go out. And what I had a, a conversation with a guy from Dark Trace, good friend of mine, Max Hennemeyer, and we were talking about my theory and kind of, you know, what I would like to see happen. And he calls it active defense. So mm-hmm. going, at, going after those groups internally, packaging up the intelligence package, handing it over to you know, law enforcement or government to take care of the dirty work um, mm-hmm. or getting a letter of marquee to take them down. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, working on instant response, we see these, these telltale signs, these breadcrumbs, and we get to know the attackers pretty intimately. Mm-hmm. But it just seems like in the U.S., if, if you're not critical infrastructure, if you're not the big five as far mm-hmm. as tech companies, then the government really has no interest in defending you in a ransomware situation or making mm-hmm. it a big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. But those are the people that are hurt, hurt the most are the small to medium businesses. I mean, I've seen whole entire companies shut down over, over one incident. Mm-hmm. And while the FBI is going out and compromising Bitcoin wallets or crypto wallets, you know, because of, you know, whatever ransomware attack or going after, you know, the guys who did the infrastructure attack on, on the oil, you know, or the natural gas, it's like, that's great. And that shows, you know, some, some proactive uh, measures, but those aren't the people that are being hurt the most people who are being hurt the most are, you know, people living next door to me that have small companies um, that can't afford the insurance, can't afford the ransom. And it literally shuts them down. And to me, that's what the U S was built on was the idea of coming here and be able to build an empire, build a company, you know, from nothing as an immigrant and be able to set everything up and, and prosper and have a good life. But we seem to forget about those people when it comes time to make statements of, we're not gonna allow this, we're gonna do this if you do this. Um, I think we have the notifications down, but I think you're right. I think we need to have a preset response system as to if this happens, this is a result. That way there's, there's no gray area because a lot of these attackers are nation state. Right. And they're not going to care if you tell them to stop or not. You know, right. look at North Korea and China. If we put sanctions on them, first thing their hackers do is go after Bitcoin or go after right. cryptocurrencies. Right. You know, it's, right. it's, it's a, it's a never-ending cycle. And being on the inside, it's like there's got to be something that we can do as skilled professionals to stop that from affecting everybody. You know? right. So that's, that's kind of my goal is, is look at the landscape, look at the temperament, look at the people behind the true acts of ransomware and the true motivations and go after that. And I right. think until the U S can, can take those proactive measures 
and do it boldly, I think we're, we're always going to suffer the same type of attack over and over again. Right. No, that, that's an excellent point. So I know that uh, the U.S. government has made some progress in terms of uh, making some international agreements with, with other countries. Uh, uh, but the, of course, the problem is that none of that's actually enforceable. And, right. and it's great that the U.N. talks about the, the issue of, of uh, ransomware and, and, and international hacking. But again, there, there's no enforcement. There, there can't be enforcement. I don't want there to be U.N. enforcement. I don't want the U.N. Right. To, 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 to be enforcing these kinds of things on, on another country or, or us. I, I think the U.N. is a great place to create agreements where everybody uh, you know, basically wants what the outcome is going to be. And I know that that sounds kind of circular or redundant or obvious, but but the idea is that it's not for contentious things. So for example, nobody nobody wants to die in in, in a plane crash or or a boating you know a, a ship uh, accident at sea. So so everyone is in favor of creating pathways for for ships and planes and procedures for how you how you you fly and how you you're traveling on the seas, right? And everybody says, okay, oh great, you want to do it this way. Uh, Red lights here, green lights there, check, all right. Uh, and everybody understands those systems and respects them because it's in everyone's interest to get to where they, they want to go safely. Different story when you're talking about hacking because it's in some people's interests to make hundreds of millions of dollars by hacking you know, your stuff and your, your companies in a different country. And, and there's, there's no way you can go after them you know, legally and there's no way that you can go after them with some kind of like international body of force, uh, the UN or, or anybody else. So as a result, maybe you've got 90, 95, 98, 99% of the people in the world say, hey, I like that agreement uh, that you could do with the UN, but you've got the criminal element or, or the geostrategic element that wants to use this as an element of national power to, mm -hmm. to go against you know, larger, more powerful countries like the US uh, by staying just below our, our level of, of conflict, you know, where we might actually do something kinetic or, or, or impose some harsh international level sanctions. So, so yeah, for better or for worse, the UN's not really the body to, to create these kind of enforcement mechanisms. It can create the, the mechanisms that everyone agrees to, like, like the internet itself, you know, mm -hmm. You use these protocols to actually have a web page. Great, everybody, that's fine. You can do that through the UN, but, but you're not going to stop hacking through the UN. The, the, the better way, I think, to, to stop or to reduce hacking, because you're not going to ever eliminate it. It's like bank robbery or any other kind of crime. I don't know how you could totally zero out a, a type of crime, particularly one that's so, so, uh, so uh, lucrative and something that's relatively easy. And it's something where Literally, you can try a thousand times uh, for very little cost, very little effort, and 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 no negative response. You know, you're not going to go at a bank a thousand times <laughs> without having without having some kind of response that that's going to cost you you know time or money or, or, or worse. So so yeah, this is this is why I think that uh, really it comes down to a mechanism, sort of like uh, the insurance industry, because. Uh, this is one of those problems where it's so hard to fix on the back end. Once you get involved into, into losing money and a hacker's in your system, that's, that's as you've worked on it you know, many times in your career, it's so much harder to get somebody out of the system than to, to prevent them from getting in the, in the beginning. So as a result, again, just looking at the number of hacks, I mean, something like 90% of successful uh, data breaches come from a human factors issue, right? 
it's it's not it's not not having the right kind of technology. The technology is already out there. It's a question of who's using it and and are they using it correctly? Again, um, you know, from my time uh, doing operations, uh, it's really fascinating because uh, sure they they can give you an encrypted system to use to send messages or do whatever. But, but you learn very quickly, it, it's also the tradecraft around using that system. You know, so, so just in your real life, if you are trying to send a message, an encrypted message, and you don't want to be found, it's not just, hey, is this 256-bit encryption versus 128? Well, do you have a keystroke logger in your, under your, your keyboard? Uh, do, you, do you have some kind of malware in your computer that's making a copy of everything that you send to somebody? Uh, is is uh, somebody sitting there uh, in between you and the intended receiver and they're grabbing a copy of it uh, and they've got a key to decrypt it? I mean, there, there are so many other factors that you have to think about rather than just the equipment. And I think a lot of times companies get focused on the equipment, the software, they pay a lot of money to a vendor to set them up with the latest and greatest of these things. All those things are great, not trying to run down those systems, but if you don't have people at your company who are trained to some extent to either use those systems or if they're not kind of in the IT part of the company, uh, just as, as regular users, if they're not trained to do a lot of fairly basic things like strong passwords that they don't use in other places, on and on, uh, you're still not going to be as safe as you can be. So again, back to the question of insurance, the idea would be if you had... Um, a central institute for all the insurers, a place that could actually research and take in the cyber research of other great entities and individuals, as well as information from the government, like when the government, as you're pointing out, realizes, oh, this is this threat actor, it's that group, this is what they're doing, this is how they do it. They would give it to the, this kind of insurance research um, institute. And then that institute would formulate cybersecurity standards. No, nothing, nothing that would be too harsh to, to institute for, for even the smallest of companies. And it, and it would you know, grade it out, kind of like if you're a, a one or two person mom and pop shop, this is what you ought to do. All the way up to very large uh, companies doing very serious, maybe even you know, national level types of things. But basically anybody who wants cybersecurity insurance should have to adhere to these kinds of standards. So nothing onerous, like I said, but certainly you know one or two steps past uh, normal common sense level types of things, um, but, but easy things that uh, to implement. If you could shut down a huge percentage of these of the ninety percent of attacks that get through through the human factors uh, methods, wow! Think about how much money you'd save, you know, from the small oh, to the large companies, yeah. right? So 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 that's that's the concept. Um, the, the idea is that it, this wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be coming from one insurance company. This would be, think of it as kind of like, I'm sure you're familiar with um, underwriters laboratories, right? Right, right. So, all right, so UL. So totally voluntary system, right? They, they, do, they do safety, uh, product safety, testing of all kinds of products. So you buy a, a surge protector power strip for your, your laptop at home or in your office, whatever. Uh, it's got the UL seal on the back of it, right? You probably aren't even looking for it when you go shopping. But chances are, Best Buy, whatever company you shop at, there's no way they would carry a power strip that, that doesn't have the UL seal of approval. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, it's a, UL is basically a market maker. If some, if some company says, hey, we don't care about UL certification, 
we want to do this on our own and we either want to save money and make a really crummy version of a, of a surge protector that without that kind of thing, well, they're free to do it in the market. There's not a law that says you have to go get that certification, but who's going to sell that, right? And then who's going to buy it? It's the exact same thing, I think, with cyber insurance. If you had a cyber insurance institute that had that level of regard that the that UL has uh, in, in safety, yeah, I think that they could promulgate these standards, but but the, the market-making component of this is twofold. One, you've got the, the pricing that cybersecurity insurers have to figure out. They don't have hundreds of years of, say, human activity and human history to know, okay, if you're a guy who does this kind of function and you, you live here in this part of the country and this is your diet and how much you exercise, you'll probably live to be about this old. So this is how much your insurance is going to cost you, you know, in your 20s versus in your 70s, right? That's all pretty well, well known. You don't have that kind of history for, for cyber attacks, obviously, and, and data security. This kind of an institute would start measuring those things in a very calculated, very... Uh, very singular, very official and kind of all in one place type of way so that you could then put out the, the, that data to the insurance companies. And then everyone would have a much better sense of what's risky behavior and what level of risk are you trying to insure? So as a result, if your company X looking for cybersecurity insurance and you want to adhere to all these standards, great, your insurance rates are quite low. You know? And if you don't want to adhere to them for whatever reason, or, or on the back end, you know, you say you did, but you didn't. Uh, and then they come in and they do the investigation and find out, oh, your password was password one, two, three. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're going to get a double hit uh, for something like that. That's the thing that would, it would both um, keep cyber in, cybersecurity insurance uh, consistent in terms of the way they charge what they charge for and would help the insurance companies, but it would also up the game of, all the companies in the country that are looking for cyber security insurance. And, and on top of that, it would also help with all the companies, even if you're not buying cyber security insurance, if you buy a laptop, if you buy you know, a baby monitor, remember the Mirai botnet thing, oh, right? Yeah. A lot of that was because what? The cheap baby monitors that either had uh, hardwired passwords, you know, or, or sorry, hard-coded passwords, or, or no, no passwords, password, no password at all, or default password that's never changed, and you know, whatever hacking group just jumped in and looked online, and you know, and they controlled tens of thousands of those, right? So under this kind of a system, obviously, a company of that size would 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 have insurance. It would have a cyber insurance rider, or even separate cyber insurance, you know, policy. And then, and they would come in and say, oh, okay, baby monitors. Yeah, you're going to need to have a better passwords system for that. Boom. That cuts out what? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of zombie, you know, IOT elements right there mm -hmm. uh, out of a possible attack. Uh, so, so there you go. That's the concept of, of why I think cybersecurity insurance is, is the thing that's going to, to really help reduce attacks in the future. I, I totally agree. I think that. With, with that kind of model, it can definitely be successful. The, the thing that scares me is when I look at internet traffic and I see stuff from SQL Slammer, you know, years ago, or, you know, a, another virus that came out in like 2001 and it's still floating around the internet and people are still getting affected by it. It's like, how long does it take you to realize that you have to do this? Like you have to patch, you have to look out for this stuff.
But and, and another problem I see too is people who get very digital in their company and their company is not a technological company. It's more of a services based and they don't have that technical acumen to, to build these systems and, and build a strong infrastructure. And they're left with what they've read about or, or what they've heard about. And those systems are always left you know, wide open. And then, so you take the cybersecurity insurance, right? And that will take the pressure off of, well, not really take the pressure off of, but put people accountable within corporations, right? And commercial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you look at the shift and that shift, the attackers will no longer look at those companies and they'll start looking back at the individuals. And that's, that's my only fear with the cybersecurity insurance is, yeah, we're building a strong infrastructure of companies and you know, people who, who have large corporations and, and who are making money off of these corporations, but then the shift turns it right back onto the, you know, the, the guy living down the street, um, which I think is, it can be dangerous as well, unless those infrastructure that, that you know, like ISPs, when they deploy their modems, um, can build something into it that meets that level that their corporations would have to, right. to get the cyber insurance, right? Right, right. With Comcast, um, when I did my interview with NBC in Houston, I showed how I could take down a Comcast router, security system, internet, and cameras, all with one tool in like two seconds. Right, and sure. Comcast res- uh, response to that was nothing. And then all the <laughs> right. hard code, all right. the hard coded credentials from Comcast, like their business right. uh, routers had hard coded credentials that nobody knew about. Sure. They're able to find them. It's right. like if we could force ISPs to reach that su- same level of compliance right. as we would like these other corporations, right. it would be a perfect world. Well, that's, that's an excellent point. And uh, you, you reminded me of something that, that really kind of proves the, the, the point of kind of the, the business side, pushing mm-hmm. the business side to improve their game on cybersecurity. And that helps individuals. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you had a spirited discussion about war driving? Never. I mean, you maybe maybe two days ago, maybe two days ago. I don't know. But 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 the idea is that the idea is that you never really even hear the term war driving anymore. But what, 15 years ago uh, or whenever, uh, yeah, at least 15 years ago, when you would get your modem, it, it was open and you would you would have you would have just internet shooting out to the street completely wide open unless you chose to put a password on it. Right. And how easy was it to just go around a neighborhood and get on anybody's internet? And all the mischief. Yeah, exactly. And all the mischief that that, you know, could lead to and did lead to sometimes. Right. Mm. Uh, And and so but what happened? It wasn't that there was some public service announcement from a government cybersecurity agency or someplace like CISA, not to beat on CISA. I think it's a wonderful uh, organization. But but the, the bottom line is the average person isn't looking for, you know, the latest missive from the government on cybersecurity. People right. want to live their lives. They want to get online and do something. But what happened though? Enough bad things happened that, that uh, VPN or um, you know, the, the, uh, the internet providers started putting nice, decent, strong passwords onto their modems when they sold them, right? Mm-hmm. So as a result, you don't have to do a thing. You read the, the, the password off the back of your, your modem and, and you're good to go. I, Hardly unhackable. I mean, again, a guy like you, yeah, you can get into something like that, but not a random guy who just right. decides to drive down the street doing whatever he wants to as many houses as he wants in one night. That would be, you know, a lot more work to, to hack into those things. And so on with zero effort on the part of the end 
consumer, the end user, uh, that person now has much better security. I would like to think that that's the type of thing that an insurance institute would promulgate and they would say, hey, uh, insurance carriers, make sure that if you're insuring um, uh, you know, internet service providers, that when they send modems, this is how they do it at minimum. I mean, it's just minimum, not like something onerous, but make sure they've got password, decent passwords on them. Uh, and, and if somebody wants to use two-factor, they can do that. It's a bonus. Maybe their insurance goes down even lower if they use two-factor. But, uh, but then you let the market decide what it wants to do, right? But it, it just has a, a nudge in the direction of, of cybersecurity. And this way, there's no government mandate. Because again, who, who likes government mandates? Nobody. True. So, so this is, it's the private sector. It, it's everyone's in everyone's financial interest to have better cybersecurity. It's just that, you know, you started off with the insurance providers, the insurance companies, they save money because they've got lower and fewer payouts. Mm-hmm. And, and then companies save money because they have lower rates on their insurance. So, and then, and then you as the end user, the consumer, you get better products in the same way that, you know, again, 15 years ago, how many websites do you have to log into? You know, very few. Now, you got to log into everyone. And, and remember how you used to be able to make any password you wanted. And now a lot of sites are saying, hey, look, at least eight characters and it's got to look like this, that type of thing. Uh, so th- there's there's a progression that's being made, but but it's not consistent. It's not anywhere con- near consistent, and it's not going anywhere near fast enough to keep up with the rise in crime. So it's just a question of standards. Um, la- last analogy on this, or if you want more analogies, I've got a bunch. <laughs> but but off the top of my head right now, again, it, it's kind of like automobile safety. So car safety in America, you know, well, that was driven by a lot of things, right? But but part of it was insurance. And now if you buy a car, well, first of all, you can't buy a car without an airbag. Without insurance. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well, right. You can't buy a car without insurance, but you can't buy a car uh, that doesn't have an airbag, right? Mm-hmm. So insurers basically were saying, hey, look, you know, these are better safety standards. And now it's saving people's lives, of course, but it's also saving people money, you know, on their insurance. And the more safety features, optional ones you buy, usually you know, the lower your insurance is. So Insurance is kind of a market maker in the in the auto safety world, also. And let's not forget how hard the car companies fought all kinds of safety innovations. You know, airbags, Lee Iacocca at Chrysler said it would be way too expensive uh, to add them. Now they're and, and at first they were only kind of in the high end cars, kind of like again guys like you at the high end of cybersecurity. You're using all the best and, and newest uh, uh, techniques and software and hardware. But that kind of stuff trickles down into the mainstream. Uh, we're just trying to, to, to get the adoption uh, of it even faster. So, and that's that's part of what I'm working on. I'm, I'm talking to insurance companies to, to try and get a critical mass behind this idea so that, yeah, they, or they're willing to kind of create, fund, and support that kind of an institute. Uh, so that's 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 what I'm into right now. That's my contribution to, to creating a, a safer internet. That's awesome, and I, I think it's. I think it'd be really beneficial if we can all reach that level. Um, the only place I can see a government mandate being functional and effective is on OS development, like Microsoft mm. and Apple sure. making a standard. Um, what really disturbed me, I was in a meeting one time with Secret Service, FBI, uh, iSight partners, and the NSA and Microsoft. And knowing that the NSA got a different version of Microsoft than everybody else, 
really disturbed me. I was like, wait a minute, what, why aren't we at privy to have the same level of security? Like that makes right. no sense to me. Right. But I think that those are the people who probably need the government mandate are the tech technology developers, especially like Apple and Microsoft. Um, I don't have anything against either one of them. I just think that, you know, if, if we have a government mandate, that's who needs to be mandated because eventually all the, all the crime and ransomware and all the vulnerabilities exist in those two groups of people alone. Mm-hmm. Um, every once in a while you see routers and switches or VPN come up and pop up or whatever. But I used to live for, for patch Tuesday to see what vulnerabilities were coming out so that I can jump on the internet and grab those real quick. Um, but yeah, the, and I see what you're saying that the, the environment tends to lead the progression to, to security. Um, and right. the attackers, I don't think will ever catch up, truly catch up to attackers. Um, you know, right. being part of the military and being in the cyber warfare unit, uh, seeing how we deploy security and how we went through offensive measures, we're still kind of mirroring or mimicking the attackers, um, trying to build better malware, trying to build right. better rootkits. Um, and I, th- sure. I think it'll be a while before we actually catch up with that. So on that same line, um, next biggest vulnerability, do you think it will be space technology or do you think it will be critical infrastructure? Huh. Well, let, let me back up. I, I just have one comment, actually two quick sure. comments. Sure. Uh, first, about the attacker versus defender. Uh, agreed. Listen, I'll tell you, you're right. If, if a government, if a, if, a, if a peer nation state and maybe even a near peer, you know, so many people have great hackers working for them these days. If they come after you, Mike Jones, forget about it. It's a, your, your VPN, your, your, your encryption, your two-factor. It's, it's going to be tough to, to defend against a concerted attack by a, a nation state. And, and that's not really the goal. We're not talking about the high-end, bespoke, zero-day attacks on a, a, maybe a defense company for, for very critical defense information. I mean, leave that to, that's government-on-government stuff at that right. point, right? Um, and, and it's kind of like, again, in, 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 uh, in some of the writing that I've done, I, I compare cyber civil defense to civil defense and people say, ah, well, that was, that was just for show, uh, having people get into fallout shelters and everything. A nuke hits you, you're dead. Oh, of course. It, you know, you've got a, a, a 10 ton, a 10 megaton uh, nuclear device stepping right over your shelter. Yeah, of course. But the idea back then certainly was that, was that, well, if you're in a place that's on the edge of a strike and you're you know, dozens and dozens of miles miles away, you're talking about some level of radiation, some level of fallout. Uh, yeah, some of that is, is survivable to an extent. And if you want to, to work to defend yourself, boom, here's the way yes, to do, do. it. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the government worked with industry to, to explain ways to do that, to, to create a few types of, of places, some you know municipal fallout shelters, as well as to give people the plans to have their own, uh, to build their own uh, fallout shelters in, in their, their backyards, that kind of thing. So it, it, it's that concept. No, you're right. If, if it's, if a government says, Hey, it's your turn in the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. Tough times. That, that's going to be hard to defend against. Um, but, but I think that there's a lot of things that even the average guy can do, let alone, you know, corporations of various sizes to defend themselves. Uh, the other thing is about the government mandates on, on OSs. Uh, I, I think I would have to disagree with you. So let's go on record as maybe the first time ever. It's 
the ex-CIA guy who was more anti-government mandate than the hacker, you're the, the pro-government guy. <laughs> All right, so, uh, but no, seriously, uh, I, I see your point. I see your point. I would still go with government guidance though, just because it, it, it's just, I think the government is too slow to come up with constant accurate levels of mandates because what sure. will happen then is that companies will, will fall down to that standard. They're not going to rise to the standard, they're going to fall to the standard. And if the government is a little too slow in promulgating a standard, some massive thing is compromised, then the companies now get to transfer the risk and the fault to the government. Say, hey, look, look, we followed the standards, we did everything. I mean, honestly, it's kind of a, I think Facebook's marketing play on government standards is brilliant mm-hmm. because they know what you and I know, having been in government, and that's a government, the wheel of government turns very slowly. Mm. Uh, you don't want them coming after you because once they decide you know, you're the guy, yeah, you're done. You're done. They're going to get you. They're going to get you. But but by saying Facebook's not saying, hey, government, give us standards. Facebook is saying, hey, government, why don't you just create standards for the whole industry? And they know that there's no way Congress can come together, put together any standard for mm. the entire social media industry or any other kind of tech industry, really. Um, and 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 keep it modern. So they're just not going to, you know, Congress just isn't going to do it. Therefore, Facebook doesn't need to adhere to any kind of standard. See what I'm saying? And they can always keep saying, hey, we're, we're still waiting. As, as soon as the government tells us not to do, you know, whatever bad thing of the day they're being accused of, we'll, we'll stop doing it. And they, they, get a, they get a pass. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy. Uh, but anyhow, so sorry. Now on to your question about uh, the next biggest threat. Is it going to be space or or uh, why, why choose? Why not both? <laughs> That's a good question. That's good. I think the next war that we have, technical war, uh, I think most of it's going to be fought on the cyber realm, in the cyber theater. Right. Um, you know, that, that's just my thoughts. But looking at space and looking at the push towards, you know, exploration again yep. um, and knowing the vulnerabilities with some of the satellites, some of the satellite missions, it's really hard not to think that we're going to see some sort of activity in the skies as far as hacking right. and, and, and that type of conflict. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say just to actually give you an answer, one or the other, I would say infrastructure rather than space. And here's why I, mm-hmm. I think with space. Wow. That's look, here's the thing. There's a return address on any kind of a weapon system that you send into space. Right. Mm-hmm. So if another country launches a missile that takes one of your satellites out, there, there's no hiding from that. It's not right. like it's not like a guy who's, who's using a bunch of VPN hops and using Tor out of a third country hacking into civil infrastructure someplace, right? You, how many countries can accurately launch a, a weapon system and, and take out a U.S. satellite? Just two that, that I know of. <laughs> that list is very short. That list is very short uh, and and frankly obvious, right? So so the point is like. For example, you just saw the, the Russians destroy one of their own satellites and mm-hmm. the debris that it created. Uh, I That kind of thing, I would think any country that wants to do something like that, it's to mm-hmm. show their capability in a wartime situation. And right. I think that, yeah, in, in, a, in an all-out war, you want to blind the enemy and then go at them. If, if that's your strategy, that kind of thing makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, frankly, it, it could be a very destabilizing in the sense that if you have a limited war someplace, you start taking out satellites, the government, the, the other government can't really see what's going on. They might overcompensate for their lack of knowledge of what's, what's happening. So, I, yeah, I think that the like space-borne attacks, that would be, that'd be pretty tough. Plus, 
if you're talking about interfering in a pure exploration mission, like we're sending people to Mars, let's say, mm -hmm. or back to the moon. Ooh, I mean, what country would want to be, you know, tagged with having interfered with that kind of a, a, a mission, you know, to, to the detriment or loss of life of the people on board? So I, I think that, yeah, space, it, 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 I think in the future, yeah, uh, far off from now, that will certainly be a realm uh, of, of conflict. Right now, I'm much more concerned about about civil infrastructure, just because yeah, you've already seen all the all the uh, almost attacks and kind of nibbling around the edges of of, mm. uh, of our of our critical infrastructure systems. So, yeah. and and you can get so much more bang for the buck by threatening those, or even you know partially shutting some of these down because you do create that confusion. Well, is this power company? Is this a government entity or is it a private entity? And and if if you only knock out the power to a neighborhood for, for two days, is that are you going to launch a war based on that? You know, maybe not. Let's say, but that but then the enemy knows something about your right. possible responses or your lack of responses, or your lack of ability to respond short of an actual conflict. So yeah, I think that we're unfortunately looking forward to to more. Uh, more issues in, in critical infrastructure uh, in that realm than, than in space. And this is why uh, the things that, that cyber defenders do is so important. Uh, I mean, on the technical side, in terms of coming up with systems to, 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 protect, to protect these infrastructure systems, mm -hmm. but also on, on the human factor side, in terms of training people to be better to, 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 to keep these kinds of uh, attacks out of their systems. Because at the end of the day, yeah, I've got to admit, insurance isn't really going to help <laughs> You know, if you if you lose a quarter of the nation's power grid, the, the, right? The car crash has already happened. Exactly, right? Exactly. You look at look at Texas, and that was not even a cyber attack, no. weather-related stuff. But when when you're playing with with an electrical grid like that, people's lives literally are at risk. So Definitely. very 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 challenging problem. Yeah, it, interesting, interesting too. Uh, Texas. You know, my dad was on the uh, ERCOT uh, board. And I worked in electricity for a little bit as a lineman and kind of got my feet wet and, and was looking at the systems, right? My dad at the time was, was running a dispatch office uh, for a power company in Texas. And I got to see what kind of systems they worked on and, and the kind of things that they faced. What I realized was the internet and technology advanced so quickly in the U.S. that it left most of the infrastructure behind. I mean, we're, we're still talking about manual switching. We're still talking about... Yep. You know, old school fuses and, and breakers right. and the system that they're running the dispatch on most of it was NT systems. And it's like, you know, at what point do we look at that and go, okay, we definitely need an overhaul of all the critical infrastructure for the power grids. Cause there's like five different power grids. Right. We need to get them all updated to right. a standard. Right. And I right. think that, I think that NERC and, and ERCOT and groups like that are actually trying to further that, you know, trying to advance on that and be proactive. Um, but again, the internet and technology has moved so quickly that some of these industries are left completely behind. Right. And I think it's going to take some time to catch up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I would love to see massive investment in critical infrastructure. So I, I don't know if that's in the, the new infrastructure bill that's, that's going through, but uh, I certainly hope so, because yeah. that is, is honestly, it's, it's something that a lot of people take for granted. And I think we're kind of whistling past the graveyard on the mm. question of critical infrastructure uh, security from, from cyber attack and cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Absolutely. Right. I mean, when you look at Florida and, and some 
I, I say some kid because they definitely weren't skilled attackers, but they got in through team viewer into that water treatment facility. And it's like, it, you'd no longer have to be a skilled attacker. All right. you got to have is show Dan and Cali and you can disrupt the water supply. Right. And that, to me, that's really scary. And, and as a country, I think in order to protect everybody and to become, you know, solid, we have to look at that kind of stuff and put money into it. And so far, like I've seen a lot of lip services to, well, we're, we're working on infrastructure, um, Idaho National Labs. I went out there a couple of times uh, to do the red team, blue team symposium and attack the SCADA systems. Um, and those are great. But, you know, we're talking about five huge grids across the U.S. And, and I remember after 9-11, when we had the brownout in the uh, Northeast. And the first question was, was this ter- terrorism related? Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends were like, oh, you know, this, this can't be terrorism related. And I said, you're, you're probably right. But let's not forget that in California, there's been attackers in that grid forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. they've picked them up and identified them. You know, they're there. And it's just a matter of time before they hit that kill switch. And I think as a country, we're facing that in a, in a very blatant way. Uh, when we look at ransomware and the attacks on infrastructure and the probes on infrastructure, it's just a matter of time before that switch gets flipped. No, that, that, that's a great point. It's a great point. Um, I mean, yeah, even with that, I, ideally, you're talking about something much smaller than, than a massive attack. Uh, right. You don't want any attack, ideally, but, but, uh, but a massive attack, I think that that would be an act of war. I mean, that would mm-hmm. shut down half of the nation's electricity for, for weeks. Uh, that would absolutely, I would think, I would think it would call for some kind of a, a serious response. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and quite frankly, when you have incidents like that, California brownouts, uh, the, the power outage in, in Texas, uh, it, it is kind of interesting that people say, hey, was this a cyber attack? Was this terrorism? No, it wasn't. Okay. It was just, you know, clean mismanagement or whatever. It, why not take that as a trial run and say, okay, what if this mm-hmm. had been a cyber attack? Well, let's go back and, and see where this thing failed. How can we shore it up and, and look at look at the effects of this limited outage? Mm-hmm. Now imagine what it would be like if somebody really hit it hard and you had to replace some of these like almost handmade systems that you've got, you know, because they're because they're so old in, in, in some of these grids. Uh, and, and how many months it would take to, to replace some of these uh, devices mm-hmm. and then and then realize, okay, those are our actual costs of, of not having a cybersecurity defense. Mm-hmm. So if anybody was saying on the front end, oh, well, we can't afford to hire all these people and, and bring in these new systems because it would be X number of millions of dollars. Okay, we'll compare that to everything goes offline for two months. How many billions of dollars plus lives would that cost? I, to me, that's... That's the cost benefit calculation that you have to look at when you're right. considering upgrading your, your cyber defenses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you accepting the, uh, the invite. And uh, we, we'll have to do this again sometime. I, I Absolutely. Think, I think there's so many more topics that we could cover Absolutely. And, and banner about. I think it'd be great. Um, any last questions for me or, or about the group or about me or podcasts? No, it was it was a terrific experience. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of your podcast now. Uh, I've been listening to them. Uh, really interesting stuff, and I, I just I really like the way that you look at so many aspects of cybersecurity. Uh, it's not just the uh, issue of you know the, the zeros and ones. You, know, you, right. you look at the, the the human factors, the political factors, the international factors, 
all those kinds of things. So that's why I, I, I like your podcast better than, than a number of them that, that are a little bit too much in the weeds in terms of, of cyber, just because, yeah, you can, you can do cyber at, at the individual level or maybe defending one company. But I think it, it's really important to also consider that kind of nation level strategic concept of, of cybersecurity. So thank you for allowing me to, to add a little bit to that conversation. And, and I'd, I'd love to come back at any time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Mark. And uh, until next time, guys, I'll see you and uh, stay safe. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mike.